if you want to know about me as a person, really the three things are, I am a baseball fan first, Yankee fan second. I am a fish and Grateful Dead fanatic. Okay. And I don't remember what the third one was. Oh, I have a really shit memory. (laughs) And there's the open, Josh. Thank you. Everybody. Welcome to the Human Element Kara's podcast on modern marketing. I am thrilled to have Josh Sternberg here today. He is former media and tech editor at Adweek, as well as a whole jack of all trades career in and around media and PR, even started his own consultancy for a little bit. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. You are now, you launched your own newsletter called Media Nut. Do, do I have that right? Yep, that's, that's exactly right. It's actually a second iteration of this newsletter. Got it. How can people subscribe to it? Let's make sure we get this in the open. Sure. Uh, They can go to medianut.substack.com. Perfect. So Josh, there's so many questions I want to ask you. I can tell you right now, you're going to have to come back already and we haven't even asked one. But I want to start, you've obviously been all around the media, the agency business for quite some time, and you've sort of relaunched this effort in the newsletter. Can you give me just a little bit of, of your sort of history in and around the business and bio so that people know a bit more about where you're coming from? Yeah, sure. First, thanks for inviting me on. This is really exciting. I am here speaking to you today because 20 years ago, I was a failed musician. <laughs> As all great stories do, it begins with a guitar slung around my shoulders. I was in a band that played jazz rock, jam band kind of stuff. And we were doing that for a few years. We were, we were good, but not great. And it dawned on us that we were not commercially viable. I guess people don't like to hear 20 minutes of a particular song. Actually, it was during the dot-com bust where I needed to figure out what to do with my life. And as a 22-year-old, I went back to school. I got my graduate degree in media studies and fell in love with academics. From there, I went to become a professor, teaching some media theory courses, some production courses, public speaking stuff. And I really enjoyed it. But I also met a girl who lived in New York. I was in New Jersey. Fast forward a couple of years, we moved in together and I needed to find a job because teaching in New Jersey and living in New York was not economically efficient. So I actually wound up tripping into public relations and I wound up working in PR for a number of years at a couple of agencies. I started my own consultancy. 2008 happened. I got laid off, started writing and one thing led to another. And then in 2012, I was the media reporter at Digiday. Did that for a couple of years until I got a phone call from the Washington Post saying, hey, we'd like for you to come do some branded content stuff with us. We like what you do. You know what you're doing. Why don't you make the switch? So I said, sure. And then NBC came calling and did the same thing. And that was great until it wasn't when my whole entire team got laid off. And I found myself thinking, oh, I would really like to get back into the newsroom. 
And that led me to Adweek, where for the last three years, you know, I built and ran some pretty strong editorial teams. And then a few weeks ago, for the third time in my career, I found myself on the wrong end of the pink slip. And my brain doesn't really do well when I do nothing. So I had to do something. And I figured, hey, why not start dumping some thoughts out of my brain onto a screen and see what happens. And four plus weeks later, the media nut is, is out and about. Daily stories on everything in the media business from brands, publishers, agencies, ad tech, critical analysis of the press. It's a mixed bag. That's my story. I love that story, except for the layoff parts. But there's no shortage of stuff to talk about, right? I mean, it, it, you know, you sort of find yourself obviously in a difficult moment, but a remarkable one as it relates to, you know, there's literally a story every hour on those broad pillars of topics that you just outlined. And in fact, you sent one this morning, sort of talking a little bit about this inherent and natural conflict between PR and journalism just came into my inbox. I don't know, about 10 minutes before we got on the pod. Share with me a little bit about that. Let's start there. What is that story about? What's the, what's the insight in that story? And what are the implications for brands and marketers? We're at an interesting moment, right? Not just the world on a macro level, but the industry on a micro level, where we have tens of thousands of journalists who have been let go, laid off, furloughed, whatever, because advertisers have pulled budgets, which have ultimately led to publishers having to let people go because they're not seeing any ad revenue, yeah. right? So it's a whole entire supply chain. And one of the weird effects of that, which we'll see, it hasn't happened yet, but we'll see because we saw this in 2007, 2008, when the last round of the media bloodletting occurred, a lot of those unemployed journalists started to work for PR agencies and in-house comms divisions. So today, we kind of look at what happened yesterday, where uh, Amazon sent out a pre-edited package to a whole bunch of news stations about how great they're doing and handling the coronavirus in their fulfillment centers. The idea was, hey, let's send it out and see if anyone bites. And sure enough, 11 news organizations, TV stations, ran the package 10 of those did not mention that it came from Amazon. Only one did. We're going to start to see more of these types of behaviors where PR is trying to not just set an agenda, but put the company that they work for in the most positive light. That's why they, they get paid. That's their job. Journalists aren't that, right? They're, they're looking at questions of what is happening and how does this affect my, my reader, my viewer. So when you have these two ends kind of butt up against each other, you can see where at a time when there are fewer checks and balances, not just for government, but for companies, because there are fewer journalists, we'll start to see more of these types of stories seep into the press. It's interesting. I don't want to highlight this as a conflict because it's not, but, you know, to some extent, particularly at large organizations, the 
manpower and resource that they can deploy against these things uh, greatly outweigh what a journalist or a media outlet can deploy on some of these things. And so you can see how just the sheer volume and manpower of it means that there's a, a disproportionate ability to kind of handle the vetting that comes from the journalist perspective. And that lack of equilibrium is a real issue. And, you know, the pressure of the journalist, right? So in today's hyper-metabolic world, journalists are often on the hook for several stories a day. So they just pump out content. And when you have a quota attached to what you do, if someone's giving you a prepackaged story, run with it. Because who has the time? You know, you got to write five stories a day. It's a very tough world. I also want to make clear that this is not a direct one-to-one relationship. There are several other factors at play here that are causing these different types of shifts. It's not just PR sending stuff to a journalist and a journalist being late. Like there are other factors involved, including time and resources, energies, bullshit KPIs on the journalist's point of view, and even, you know, to your point, just the sheer manpower where you've got six PR people for every journalist in the country right now. To your point, let's sort of step back. You've been pretty direct in the newsletter about the issues that face publishers before the pandemic, and now here we are sort of at this you know, earth-shaking event, you know, in the midst of the pandemic. What's your perspective on what those, you know, kind of intergalactic issues are and, and what are the implications? Oh, boy. You know, kind of like the floodgates just opened up in my brain because there are, <laughs> there are just so many. That's okay. There's so many issues. That's all right. Give me a couple. I think about how media companies have had They've engaged in a race for scale over the last 15 years, predicated on a venture capital-funded business model that then leads to higher traffic at all costs without understanding an audience. Mm -hmm. There is a difference between a viewer and a reader, especially in digital media. We're finding that all of the media companies that push for scale, higher pages, higher ad impressions, they're doing a disservice to their reader. You know, clickbait exists online for that particular reason. Now, yeah. there's a counterprevailing idea that clickbait has always existed. Actually, have you ever seen the movie Kentucky Fried Movie? I haven't, but I've heard of it. It is one of my favorite pound for pound movies comedies. And it's basically a movie about an hour and a half window of a TV network where you see the programming Mm. and you get like little, little teasers of the news anchors. And the, the, the one that always pops into my mind is there's a teaser of, you know, someone pissed in your popcorn news at 11. Right. And we've had those, we still have those kinds of teasers today on TV Digitally, those teasers get turned into clickbait. You'll never believe what this person said, right? So that race for scale has increased those types of actions on publishers with the idea that the more eyeballs that you get, the higher 
CPMs you charge, the more revenue you get. Operating hypothesis a decade ago, we have shown time and time again, that is not the case. The value comes when a reader attaches themselves to the outlet, and in many cases, the reporter. It's why subscriptions are still the main thing that publishers are striving for. Because if you have a subscriber, they are showing you through their wallet that they value the work that you're doing. Yeah, and there's a and there's a longer term relationship. That's right. So publishers have punted the longer term relationship for the shorter term gains of that quick revenue. Additionally, because of the mechanics of the internet, where you can, as a buyer, you can get now premium inventory through a programmatic channel for a fraction of the cost if you were to go direct, the incentives have changed for publishers. So we're at this point where publishers are trying everything they can do to make money while at the same time crowing about how they are providing value. And it's a very tough needle to thread. And you saw a whole bunch of publishers over the last couple of years try to build an events team thinking, well, that's where we can provide value, both short-term and long-term. That's where we can engage into a community, have a networking moment for our people that are coming, allow sponsors to put their names and logos all over the event to associate themselves in a tried and true tactic. And it's a sound philosophy when you don't have a global pandemic changing the way that we view life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially, you know, when people can't physically be together. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Obviously, the, the events side of the business has been a huge help in an otherwise challenging environment. And now here you are in a, a situation where, you know, who knows when there'll be event revenue. Look, it's really hard to be a publisher. What role do brands have to play in this? Lots of roles. You know, <laughs> what role should they be playing, I guess? Because at the moment, I don't get the sense that they're playing, you know, the kind of role that maybe they should. You know, maybe there's a greater degree of advocacy here that needs to happen. Right. So I'm going to start from perhaps a different point of view. The last several years, we've seen the rise of brand purpose that a brand should stand for something. And that the more that a brand stands for something that a consumer agrees with, the more that that brand affinity gets carried throughout that person's life in whatever aspect, whether it's through ads or through content or through products and goods and services, you have a, a brand that does good or that aligns with that value that the consumer agrees upon, the more that that consumer will rely on that brand. Now, take that philosophy and put it towards media buying. So you ask what can brands do? Brands can, should, when understanding where their advertising dollar is going, A, pay attention. A lot of brands don't. We see this time and time again. They don't know that their ad 
came in front of particular content that might not have been good. Start putting their money where their mouths are. So you've got this brand purpose idea, but you also have this idea that brands need to support journalism because of the importance of journalism in our society. Yeah. So you've got these two different, really big, meaty, heavy, weighty topics and philosophies. And often it's just talk. And you can see that because if you were to look at a publication that continually pushes hoaxes or misinformation, you will find that there are several companies that are still supporting that publication, that network, that platform through their advertising dollars. If they actually believed in brand purpose and if they actually believed that journalism matters, they wouldn't be supporting these publications, networks, platforms. So there's a cognitive dissonance that brands are on one side of the mouth saying, hey, you know, we have this brand purpose. We are doing good. We want to better society. On the other hand, through their actions, we're seeing that that's not necessarily the case. Would you extend that into, um, you know, even business practices like extension of payment terms? Oh, absolutely. If a brand is going to pay an agency and the agency is going to sit on that money before paying out the publisher in net 60 or net 90 days or vice versa, where the company paying the agency also on payment terms, things have gotten so convoluted. To me, there's an analogy with ad tech, right? Like the idea of ad tech is to make buying and selling of inventory more efficient. A buyer can get scale just by pressing a button in a matter of milliseconds and have their ad littered all over the web. It makes sense in theory, but over the years, it's become such an opaque practice, if not a complete dark art. And it has muddied the foundation of the internet, which arguably then can lead to the muddying of society, right? How do you, if the pipes that are used for ad tech are also the same ones that Facebook and Google and Twitter are built off of, you can make the inference that there's a connective tissue between the opacity of ad tech and the distribution of myths and disinformation on the social network. Let's jump into that for just a second. Obviously, Twitter in particular, you know, has found themselves in the past 24 hours in, a, in an interesting situation where they provided some additional clarification, in this case, on presidential tweets. What do you make of that development? Is this a sustainable approach? Is it in keeping with how they've handled other situations? What's your perspective? I'm not quite sure yet because there's a piece of me that thinks, well, maybe Twitter is baiting the president a little bit. And based off of his tweets this morning railing against Twitter, one can make the argument that Twitter is waiting for this to hit the courts because it's very hard to come down, you know, what Trump says, maybe we should get rid of them completely. It's very hard for a court to dispose of the First Amendment that way. 
The First Amendment is, when we talk about freedom of speech, it's not that you and I can say whatever we want to say. The First Amendment is about the right to openly criticize the government without fear of retribution. So one might take the legal argument of, hey, we're doing this so that we can just end this once and for all in the courts. But as you and I know very well, the law moves a lot slower than technology in society. And the court of public opinion matters to a lesser or greater degree, depending on which, how you want to see it, as much as the courts. So when the president does a deflection where he's going to start to talk about Twitter and Twitter's role in fact-checking, it's a way where cynically we can now point to, well, we're talking about this instead of talking about the 100,000 people who have died because of mismanagement of the coronavirus. Again, it's another tough needle to thread for the, the platforms. You know, when Facebook says, well, we're not going to take down how the president is spreading misinformation about Biden, they're clearly taking different points of view. And ultimately, if the idea is that we can have these platforms as a place for the marketplace of ideas to thrive, society is showing that the marketplace of ideas is a fallacy. The best idea is not moving forward. Yeah. What are your expectations for the big digital platforms and how they'll handle this election in general. Obviously, you know, we don't need to get into 2016 and, and the number of issues that they had in that particular campaign. In your opinion, what have they done right in the past three years to prepare and what still remains? You know, I don't know enough to, to give a, an answer in this. I mean, <laughs> That's I just... Okay. God bless you for being honest enough to tell me that. <laughs> It's a shit show, right? No matter how you, how you slice it and dice it, the fact of the matter is, is that any person with a keyboard and an internet connection and a Facebook or Twitter account are going to go onto the platforms to use the platforms with their way they want to do it. What I think should happen, irrespective of the election, but just a general policy, is that the platforms should be regulated the same way that media companies are regulated. Mm. The idea that Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, all of these platforms, but particularly Facebook and Twitter, they make their money through advertising, Yep. right? So if you take away advertising, these companies would not exist. And if they are making their way, their money through advertising the same way that, NBC does or ABC or the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, they then also need to be viewed and regulated in the same way. And they're not. If they were, they would have a standards and practices team, much like the networks do, where they would be able to say, wait, you know what? We cannot air this because it violates the FTC or the FCC or whatever governing body is looking at them in this particular way. These companies don't have that. We can talk about data privacy till the cows come home. That is an issue, but it's not the issue here for me. To me, it's the regulate these companies just like they were media companies. And then let's see what happens. Yeah. Uh, They have long argued they aren't media companies, and yet they are. Yeah. Well, hey, look, I've long argued that I'm an excellent baseball player. 
So, <laughs> and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, I do a newsletter <laughs> in my pajamas on my couch. Well, I got news for you, Josh. We're all doing it. You know, we're all doing something on the couch in, in pajamas at this point. <laughs> Let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about Hulk Co's and agencies. If one side of the coin is the pressure on publishers and, you know, the impact to, you know, the revenue model and sustainability of that business, you know, agencies have their own form of issue there. What's your perspective on where that is? Obviously, lots of issues and challenges prior to this pandemic. And now here we are with this cataclysmic event from a business perspective. What's your perspective on the way forward for them? So I caveat this with, again, I have no idea. If I did, I'd be a very, very wealthy man. I do think that the holding company model will need to change. It's gotten to the point where it is inefficient. It's often sclerotic. Does it serve the best interest of the client? And I think if the answer is not immediately yes, that's your answer, right? You know. And I think we can all agree that the answer is not immediately yes. There are too many cooks in the kitchen. It's too complicated. Yeah. Yeah, it's needlessly complicated, right? Like tax law is complicated. <laughs> well, I guess that's also needlessly complicated. That's a different Some Someone would argue that, yes. The agency holding model was fine-ish, 50 years ago, even 30 years ago. Today, it, it's, it's really hard to justify for a whole slew of, of partners, especially since many clients these days, and you would know better than I, don't have an agency of record anymore. They use a whole variety of shops for a whole variety of reasons. Yeah, there's a there's a fabric, including internal solutions. Well, and that's that's something that like I'm I'm interested in, right? Like, so I'll talk from the publisher side because that's more my my area. Let's say you you got a large client that is looking for the stereotypical eighteen to thirty four year old male gamer demographic, and the media buying agency then sends out its RFPs to however many publishers. But there's confusion from the outset because where exactly are you looking? Are you looking for TV? Are you looking for network, cable? Are you looking for print, newspaper, magazine, digital? Are you looking for OTT, connected TV? What's the area? And within that media agency, it's siloed to the point where you've got a print team servicing the client and you've got a TV team servicing the client and you've got a radio team servicing the client and nobody talks to one another. So that RFP goes out and now everyone's playing off of each other. Or you get to the point where you, let's say you're a media company that you have a radio arm, a TV arm, a print arm, an OTT arm. How do you respond to this RFP? It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's needlessly hard because the agency model is set up in such a way that it's so siloed, which then causes the publisher to be siloed. So you've got 
a sales rep that focuses on client side, you've got a sales rep that focuses on agency relationships. And those, those two sales reps butt heads because they're fighting at the same trough. Those sales reps need to hit their quarterly goals. So if I'm the print rep and I'm fighting against the digital rep, well, I need to hit my goal. So I'm going to push the digital rep out, out of the way. To me, it's a needlessly complicated system. Now, yeah. I am not wise enough, smart enough, or talented enough to know what the solution is. I do see that the problem here is that, you know, let alone the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, the left thumb has no idea what the left pinky is doing. <laughs> right. And that's an issue. How do you solve for that? <laughs> Some of the things, and I'll just speak from a, a Dentsu perspective, some of the things that we've started, you know, we're relatively young by comparison as a holding company. And so we sort of started with a couple of foundational principles that builds upon observations of, you know, 30 some odd years of hold codes uh, in the world. And one of them is a much tighter integration to a single P&L. And so our model is not perfect, but one of the advantages that it does have is that we do not have near as many internal battles over who's counting the money as a lot of our larger Holco brethren do in that they have many, many, many individualized P&Ls throughout their brands. You know, that's one place where we have a little bit of an advantage. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't have things we need to rationalize. We do. You know, we, like a lot of our Holco brethren, have too many brands. We have too many faces to the market. We don't have enough integrated control over the entry point. Uh, and, you know, sort of the consultative levers on the entry point with CMOs to, in a more simplified way, get access to that. But those are the kinds of things that we're working on in our model uh, every day is how do we give CMOs a more simplified entry point to expertise? Because CMOs believe holding companies have expertise. That's not up for debate. The issue is how do I get there in a way that doesn't, you know, take me far too long or is far too complicated, or is far too labyrinthian to get to get the benefit. So, what happens when you've built this relationship with the CMO, and the CMO is like, "All right, this is great stuff," but then you know, eighteen months later, the CMO is out, and now you've got a new CMO to deal with. Yep. Yep. Because I think that's also part of the problem, right? Is that the people making the decisions on the brand side for marketing and advertising, they don't have long tenures at their companies. So they will come in, blow things up, thing, the dust starts to settle, and then they're out the door. Yep. Now, I will say CMO tenure has abated a bit. It's gotten a little, you know, it, 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 six, seven, eight years ago, it was, you know, 22 months or whatever it is. It's sort of risen up past 36 or so. I'm not saying that's great, but there has been an increase. But the challenges of the CMO still remain, and that is in a lot of places, the CMO remains um, sort of disconnected from the horizontal ongoing operations of the business. You know, if you look at, you know, technology and finance, those are horizontal business leaders across an enterprise. In a lot of cases, CMOs don't have that role. Right. And they absolutely need to be, right? So if, if the idea of the CMO up until recently was to get people through the doors, right? And you get people into the stores by marketing and advertising, paid, earned, owned media. Yep. Now, because of the technology and the tools that CMOs can and should be carrying, 
they have the ability not only to get people in, but once people are in, A, get them to say, and B, when they, the people leave, get them to come back. Yep. And that should be able to give them, the CMO, enough credibility as well as enough proof that what they're doing is driving revenue, driving sales, making money. And I think part of the biggest challenge for, for, for everyone is getting that role to have the agency, getting that role to be able to make the, the, the decisions that are going to then have the CFO and the CEO of the company understand the power of marketing and advertising beyond the superfluous or fluffy messaging that when done right, branding and direct response working in tandem that moves businesses. Sure. It's transformative. Yeah. I think that many companies aren't there yet and that has a ripple effect in the relationship with the agency, which has a ripple effect with the relationship with the publisher. I agree. I agree. All right. We're going to jump into one last question and then the lightning round. If I gave you a magic wand, what are the one or two things you'd fix in media? It's a challenging question because you could probably come up with about a dozen for the three main legs of the media stool, right? Brands, publishers, and agencies, and then the overarching narrative of ad tech. But I'll I'll start with ad tech because I think that if we can clean up the opacity of digital buying, I think that unlocks a lot of potential positivity in changing the way that the industry operates. I also think on top of that, the incentives that sales reps operate by. So instead of focusing on quarterly numbers, there's a different incentive plan that gets put into it. On the agency side, I think if, as we talked before about not having siloed divisions and have more communications. And on the brand side, um, actually living up to the ideals that you talk about. Mm. All right, we have gotten to the lightning round. We're gonna see if we can actually do it as lightning. Are you ready? Let's do it. This is in theory, short answers to short questions. It almost never works. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned in the beginning you're a musician. What's your favorite song to cover? Ooh, as of this moment at 12.03 on a Wednesday afternoon, it's Little Wing. Perfect. Great answer. I love that song. You're from Jersey, yes? I am. Whereabouts? Right now, I am in a town called Maplewood. And I, grew <laughs> I used up... to live there. Oh, great. And yes. I grew up in a town called Marlborough. Oh, sure. Absolutely. All right. Here's the lightning round question on Jersey. This is a tip of the cap to all our Jersey listeners. Favorite place down the shore? Well, like when I was growing up, it was Belmar and Point Pleasant. We used to you know, always go there with my friends. We'd go to Jenkinson's in Point yep. Pleasant. As I've gotten older, we now take our summer trips down to Wildwood and ah. hang out down on, on the boardwalk down there. I mean, you also can't go wrong with Seaside Heights. I want a little peace and quiet. I go to, to Avalon. It depends on, on the mood. It depends on what I'm doing. It depends on who I'm with. Yeah. 
the AV is my tried and true. I'm up to uh, almost 40 years going to the, to the AV. The Avalon is definitely uh, my place. Do you have a favorite beach bar? When I was, when I was in a band, we used to play at Leggett's often. Now, where, where is that? That was, I think that, that was in Belmar. Belmar, okay. I do have a, a little affinity for Bar A. And again, all of that's in Belmar. I've been to Bar A for sure. <laughs> Last one. Name one unwavering belief that you hold. Okay. The 1927 Yankees are the best baseball team ever. <laughs> There's like 10 things I love about that statement, but uh, the fact that you're a Yankee fan is, is tops on the list. How much do you miss baseball? Uh, I miss baseball so much. So much. I, it, so much. That was my sport. Gosh, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we'd love to have you back. Would you do that? I've got nothing but time on my hands. So absolutely. <laughs> Josh, one more time. Tell everybody where they can subscribe. Sure. You can subscribe to my word vomit at medianut.substack.com. And if you want some more unrefined thoughts, you can follow me on Twitter at Josh Sternberg. Perfect. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Human Element. We appreciate it so much. Remember, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Please subscribe, give us a like, send us a comment, send it along to your grandmother, your aunt, your uncle, your pet owl, anything. Uh, We would love to have them as part of our audience. We will be back out to you real soon. Please stay safe. Bye-bye.